All right. Good morning, everyone. All right. Pleasure to see you all this morning. And I just want to give you a couple uh, notes on things that are going to be happening here at the chapel. Uh, the Community Blend Ministry is going to be having their open house on May 7th. So that's a Saturday. You can go out to the uh, front table that they have and get any data on that ministry that you want. Our youth group ministry meets on Wednesday night at 630 and you'll also see out front a table for Vacation Bible School. So there are some things coming up. And if you'd like to get involved in some of those ministries, there are really wonderful opportunities for you to get involved in doing that in the, the weeks to come. So last Sunday was Resurrection Sunday, uh, which is, I think, a beautiful and deeply encouraging day for all of us. The question is, what difference does that day make? Okay, and, and Paul, in 1 Corinthians 5, he says this. In light of the resurrection, so my dear brothers and sisters, be strong and immovable, always enthusiastically working for the Lord, for the, you know that nothing you do for the Lord is ever in vain. All right, because of the resurrection, we know that all of God's promises are true, are yes and amen. And so I uh, just want to encourage you to be thinking along those lines this morning as we join our hearts in worship together. I want you to stand with me for our season of prayer as we lift up some of the needs that are before us. So let's pray together. Father, we are uh, so grateful uh, for the celebration of Resurrection Day last Sunday. We're thankful that it is not a celebration that is tied only to a specific day, but it is indeed a celebration that is to affect all of our lives. And so, Lord, we respond to uh, Paul's call to be steadfast, unmovable, and abounding in the work of the Lord because we know that because of the resurrection, the lives that we live are not in vain. They're never useless, but useful for your kingdom. So we trust that your blessing would flow over the efforts that are put forth through our church family, through those that are ministering in the context of our church family, uh, doing it all with the knowledge that all that is done is for the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And Lord, this morning as we bow before you in prayer, we're mindful of uh, Gary Hoyt as he is in this uh, process of, uh, of, of, of this uh, procedure related to his uh, cancer treatment. Uh, Father, we thank you for the protection you've given him thus far, and we look forward to hearing more good news from him and uh, for his behalf. We lift up Diana before you, God, repeatedly. And uh, Lord, we ask for two things, wisdom and for healing, because God, those things come from you and they are desperately needed uh, for Victor and Diana both as they walk through this difficult season. We lift up Tom Camella and pray for continued progress. Lord, I know that he wants to be here with us in worship, and I pray that you will grant that desire to him. Uh, we lift up our grief share ministry that not only takes place here at the chapel, but also over at the Hoving Home. For the ladies that are involved in leading that ministry, Father, we pray for wisdom and effectiveness, and we pray that the gospel of Christ would be the ultimate healing in seasons of grief. And Lord, as we gather together this morning uh, to worship you and to sing songs of praise to you, I, I ask, Lord, that the purpose of corporate worship would be realized in our midst this morning. And that is that by singing to each other in songs and hymns and spiritual songs, the Spirit of God would make truth real to us and that our hearts would be deeply encouraged together in fulfilling the call that you've given to us in our personal lives and also as a church family. So we pray your blessing over this season 
in worship in the word and in worship in song for the glory of Christ. We pray these things and all God's people said, amen. Let's worship him together this morning. Stay. 
One day the skies with His glories will shine. Wonderful day, my beloved one's bringing glorious Savior. This Jesus is mine. Of my enemies, 
Amen. You may be seated. Children ages five to eight can uh, head on out for junior church at this time. So I, I want to describe a country to you, and I want you to think about country I might be describing. It's a powerful country. It's and it's a completely corrupt country. Uh, the, 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 the guy in charge will often focus on his accomplishments and seek to parade his successes among the political establishment. Sometimes he seems very strong, and sometimes he seems completely manipulated. He's happy to exploit others for his own purposes, even within his own family. He's more than happy to exploit women sexually to gratify his own hunger for lust and power. And in the midst of all this, it seems that God's people are overwhelmed, feel oppressed, don't know exactly how to proceed. What nation might I be describing? Oh, I would imagine a variety of nations might come to your mind. But we'd like to talk about Persia in our time today. We can come back to your country and your world at a later point. You know what I noticed though, folks? Whatever age you find yourself in, governments are never perfect. Corruption is always prevalent. There are systems of manipulation and wealth accumulation which troubles everybody. It's nothing new. Persia. For Esther 1 and 2, I think the best way to describe it is Corruption, compromise, and sovereignty. 
I want you to watch how they get kind of played out in our time together. You will see corruption in the midst of wealth like you have never seen before. One, one, of the, one of the key writers that we have about the period of time of the Persians, of, of, in your text, I don't even know which text you have. I have the NIV, and it starts out by saying, this is what happened during the time of Xerxes. Does anybody have a Hazareris in your, in your, in your translation? Yes. So what's going on? Which guy is it? Yes, of course. It's both. Okay. If you have a Hazareris, that's because the Hebrew text is merely transliterating over the Aramaic or Persian text. Okay. If you have Xerxes, it's because within the Greek tradition... That's how his name gets defined. So Xerxes, Ahasuerus, I'm going to use Xerxes because it's much easier to pronounce. Okay. Um, and one of the key writers that writes about 50 years after these events is a man by the name of Herodotus. Now he's writing from the, from the Greek side, so he doesn't like Persia very much. But nonetheless, we learn an awful lot about the opulence and wealth of this period. Matter of fact, in Daniel chapter 11, Daniel dates back before Esther. And it's one of the reasons I gave you the, this chart. You're probably looking at a thing in front of you saying like, hey, uh, Finkbinder, what's that all about? And I figured you probably won't be able to read it real well up here. So I made a copy of it for you. What's nice is there's no test on this. Okay? It's a complete freebie. Complete freebie. But it, it might help you to, to place Esther in the larger flow of what's going on in biblical history. Does that make sense? And so Daniel is off the scene around, you know, probably 530, by 530 BC, he's pretty much off the scene. But in Daniel chapter 11, he gives a prophecy. And he says there's going to be a series of Persian kings in Daniel 11 too. And he says, after Cyrus, the fourth king, and if you count it out, that brings you right to Xerxes. That king is going to be known for two things. On the one hand, he's going to be wealthier than any of the other kings before him. And number two, he's going to try to fight against the Greeks, which isn't going to go so well. So you have prophecy about it. You have Herodotus who's going to write later about this time period. And here we are looking at this time period, and the beauty is we get God's perspective. Right? God's perspective is a whole lot better than Herodotus. Listen to how the text begins in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 120 provinces, stretching from India to Cush. See that map up there? The far east is India. It extends in the west all the way to Ethiopia in the south and Greece in the north. It was massive. And so when you first read this, you're supposed to go like, holy mackerel. That's big. Bigger than Nebuchadnezzar ever had. It was massive. 127 provinces stretching this area. 
At that time, King Xerxes reigned from his royal throne in the citadel of Susa. It's kind of hard to read it there, so I just put an arrow with another little map. So Susa is actually in present-day Iran, just over the border, not too far from Baghdad. And so he's just giving us the setting of where all this takes place. And he wants you to be pulling back and saying, this is massive, it's huge, it's powerful, it's wealthy, and it's incredibly corrupt. His introduction comes there in verses 1 and 2. We have a problem that develops in verses 3 through 22. Let's read what happens. It's, a, it's an interesting passage. Um, one other thing, and, and you'll, you'll notice this. One of the things I would encourage you to do through this next four weeks, we're going to go through Esther in four weeks, okay? I'd really encourage you to read through Esther maybe several times. Just read it and read it and read it and read it again. It's a, it's a fascinating book. And one of the things you're going to notice as you read it, the name of God is not mentioned once. Not once in the whole book. Now, fasting is talked about and being a Jew. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, they're, they're right there. They're like one step away. But God's name is not actually mentioned. But I would argue that you see his fingerprints everywhere. So watch for that as we work through this book. Um, it was so troubling that a series of Jews, after this book was written, went back and actually wrote additions to the book of Esther. And you can read them. They've, they've now surfaced in what we call the Apocrypha. And you go back and you can read, and they have inserted in there at certain points, and Esther was praying to God, and Mordecai was praying to God, and Esther was saying, I hated that experience with the king. I just despised the whole thing. And, you know, all kinds of things to kind of make you settle down as a, as a Jew. Because you know what I mean? What's it like for a virgin to sleep with a pagan king? Is that a good thing? Or to hide your Jewishness to the point where you would have to then be eating of the king's meat, which, which we know twice in here in chapter one and two, you already, in chapter two, you find that she's eating unkosher food. Daniel wouldn't do that, but Esther does. Like what's going on? So we, we, we step into this book where God's name is not mentioned. We see his fingerprints everywhere. It's a culture that's corrupt and Christians that feel completely oppressed and are wondering, how do we negotiate in this world? Sometimes making some good decisions later in the book, sometimes making some poor decisions early on. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? So look at the problem that develops here for Xerxes. If you begin here in verse 3. Um, oh, oh, yeah, the other thing I wanted to mention, sorry, sorry, not too, I don't want to do too much introductory stuff, but hey, the other sheet that I gave you looks like this, do you see that? And I just want you to notice something, okay? I want you to notice something. What I've done is Xerxes' range, you can see there at the bottom, from 485 BC to 465. Some people say 486, but roughly, it's, ten, it's 20 years, the first scene we have in Esther is in the third year of his reign, which would be around 483. Can you see that? And the last thing we have 
comes there in uh, 473. So, so the book of Esther gives us a time period of about 10 years within Xerxes' larger 20 years of ruling. Does that make sense? Okay. Here's what's fascinating to me. Chapter 1 takes place in 483, third year of his reign. Chapter 2 ends up skipping one, two, three, four years till chapter 2 opens up. And then when chapter 2 is done, we go another five years. And then everything starts cooking. Chapters 3 to 8 in one year, chapter 9 and 10 the last year. So Tim's going to be unpacking 3 and 4. James is going to be unpack. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, three. Yeah, I think you're doing three and four. James is going to do five to eight, and then I'll come back and finish up with nine and ten. But so what's fascinating is, I don't know about you, but when I, when I see something like this, I'm always asking myself, so what happened in between? Like, why didn't you tell us anything there? Because God chose in his sovereignty to only give us what he thought we needed. But I still wonder sometimes. Okay, but anyway, I just thought you could use these sheets, maybe as we're going through Esther, you're saying, how does the time frame work with Ezra and Nehemiah and, and, and Haggai and Zechariah? Well, it, they're represented on that sheet. So if it's something you want to use for orientation, you've got it. Within the book itself, it works like that. Okay, we'll jump in. Sorry. I, I like background stuff to kind of orient us, but nobody looks like they're asleep yet. So I guess we're okay. All right. All right. So we'll jump in. Here we go. All right. So, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all of his nobles and officials, the, the military leaders of Persia and Media, the princes, and the nobles of the princes were present for a full 180 days. For six months, he displayed the vast wealth of his kingdom and the splendor and glory of his majesty. When these days were over, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days in the enclosed garden of the king's palace for all the people from the least to the greatest who were in the citadel of Susa. Six months of banqueting. That doesn't mean that's all they did with everybody completely. Maybe they're bringing them in in, in cycles. And one of the things that's really interesting, and you don't know it just reading the book of Esther, you would know it living at this time, that Xerxes' father had suffered a massive loss to the Greeks. And one of the things we know, remember I showed you before, that there's this time frame between 483 and 479, between chapter 1 and chapter 2? Do you know what we know historically goes on then? Xerxes is off to war again, again against the Greeks. And this time he's going to come back in complete humiliation when chapter 2 opens up. So that's kind of filling in the, in, in the blanks. And, I, and it's believed by many scholars, and I, I think this is a, good, is a good point, that one of the reasons he's showing off everything he has is he's trying to rally the troops to go back and fight the Greeks again. Because it didn't go so well with his dad. So we'll get him together. I'll show him the wealth that we have and let them drink themselves into a stupor. It'll be great. And I'm going to impress them. 
And so for six months, he brings in all these different political military leaders so that they go like, wow, we're ready to take on the Greeks. And he comes through this final week, seven days, and now he's just entertaining the people in the city itself. Everybody from small to great, everybody's there. Listen to the opulence. Listen to his description. It's amazing to me. He says in verse 6, that the garden had hangings of white and blue linen, fastened with cords of white linen and purple material to silver rings on marble pillars. There were couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl. I don't know what mother of pearl is, but I think it's pretty nice. And other costly stones. You know what that means? That means when you walked into this, this, this courtyard area where, where he's doing all these things, you would look around and you would say, wow, it's gorgeous. Even, even the mosaic floor. Man, if I could just take a chunk of some of those stones home with me. Everywhere you walked, everywhere you looked. And if you wanted to have a good time, it's right here. Look at what it goes on to say. Verse 7. Wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from the other. I mean, the goblets even were all different. And the royal wine was abundant in keeping with the king's liberality. So we're sitting around. Ralph, here I'm running this thing. And Ralph says, I want more. And I say, Ralph, you can have as much as you want. And he says the same thing. We just, that's the way it works. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions. Can you imagine? For the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man what he wished. Unbelievable. Now, there's a problem when you get drunk, though. People can do some things they might even regret later. So he says this, and he wants us to know one other thing. The king's doing all this in the courtyard with the males. And look at verse 9. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the royal palace of King Xerxes. So you got the women over here, the women of Susa, and the men of Susa over here with the king. And these guys are as drunk as a skunk. I mean, they're just, they're stoned. And, and so look what happens in verse 10. On the seventh day, when King Xerxes was in high spirits, I guess so, from wine, he commanded the seven eunuchs who served him, whose names I'm not going to read to you right now. You can read them later. But seven eunuchs, um, and there's a reason why a king has eunuchs in his palace, because there's no competition with his wives and concubines, okay? Enough said. So that's why they do these kinds of things, right? He commanded the seven eunuchs to bring before him Queen Vashti wearing her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and nobles, for she was lovely to look at. And here's the problem. Then the king, I'm sorry, uh, but when the attendants, verse 12, delivered the king's command, so you have these seven eunuchs, <laughs> Gone over from the courtyard to the palace. There she goes. When they, when they delivered the king's command, Vashti refused to come. And the king became furious 
and burned with anger. Now, why didn't she come? We don't know for sure. Text doesn't tell us. If I had to venture a guess, I think she would probably say, I'm royalty. I'm special. And we know from Persian history, most women who married kings came from about seven different royal families. So, you know, you may want to exhibit your concubines for your men at your men's bachelor party, or not bachelor party, male party, but I'm not coming. It's, it's, it's below me. Something like that is going on. That, that strikes me as probably the best suggestion. And can you imagine, and you've seen this, and you've been with people who are inebriated, um, and the one man, they can be going, like, <laughs> you know what? then the next minute, they can just be, they can fire it up. And this guy, when he, and can you imagine, you're getting ready to go against the Greeks, you're laughing, wait till you see my wife, the queen, man, she is on knockout, I'm going to have her dress a certain way, <laughs> yeah, uh, <clears throat> uh, she's not coming, sir. And he is just enraged. When kings get angry, they always do dumb things in the Bible. And true. You know, look at the book of Daniel. Every time Nebuchadnezzar gets angry, goes, bad move, man. Bad move. It's not going to go well. I'm just telling you. And this guy gets completely angry. And now they've got to figure out a plan to try to turn this thing around, what they're going to do. So look at, look at what happens then in verse 13, where we have, um, yeah, yeah. So, so the problem's still advancing here. So let me, let me, let me keep reading here. Verse 13. Um, since it was customary for the king to consult experts in matters of law and justice, he spoke with the wise men who understood the times and were closest to, to the king. And again, we have a list of seven different men who have access to the king. And he lists those men. Verse 15. According to the law, what should be done to Queen Vashti, he asked. She has not obeyed the command of the king of King Xerxes that the eunuchs have taken, that, that the eunuchs have taken to her. Then this guy named Mamukin. Who is Mamukin? I don't know. And I've never heard anybody name their children Mamukin. Do you know what like? Hey, what's your son's name? We call him Mamukin. Uh, I mean, you know, it's not, but I don't know. People tend to use some really different names in our day. So, hey, write it down. Maybe you want to use it sometime. I don't know. There it is, Mamukin. By the way, that's the guy's name, Mamukin. It worked in the Persian culture. Uh, then Mamukin replied in the presence of the king and the nobles. And boy, this guy thinks he's got it figured out. I don't know about you, but this sounds like overkill to me. I'm just saying. But listen to what he says. Queen Vashti has done wrong, not only against the king, but also against all the nobles and the people of all the provinces of King Xerxes. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women. And they will despise their husbands and say, King, King Xerxes commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, but she would not come. This very day, the Persian and Median women of nobility who have heard about the queen's conduct will respond to all the king's nobles in the same way. There will be no end to disrespect and discord. Or sometimes translated anger. King, this is terrible. This is going to catch like a fire. And every woman is, when her husband says something, she's going to say no, because that's what Vashti did. 
and she's going to disrespect, and he's going to get angry, and it's going to be a mess. So he says. So here's his plan. Verse 19. Therefore, if it pleases the king, let him issue a royal decree, and let it be written in the law of Persia and Media, which cannot be repealed. That was a custom. We saw it also in the book of Daniel, the same kind of thing like in Daniel 6. That Vashti is never again to enter the presence of King Xerxes. Also, let the king give her royal position to someone else who is better than she. I mean, king, you got all kinds of concubines. Just pick one. Or find another woman from the noble families. Then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all his vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest. Oh, you think that'll make the ultimate change there? Anyway, there's, there's, don't governments ever overreact? I'm just saying, I'm reading this stuff and I'm going like, deja vu, deja vu. Anyway, 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 there you go, there you go. The king and his nobles were pleased with this advice. So the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent dispatches to all parts of the kingdom, to each province in its own script, and to each people in their own language. They had a massive Pony Express process, incidentally. They could get message from India to Ethiopia in a matter of days, by the way, they actually did. It was amazing what they could do in a short period of time. It was very intricate and very complete, according to Herodotus. Anyway, proclaiming that every man should be ruled over his, every man should be ruler over his own household using his native language. So let's get the message out because at the end of the day, men are supposed to be masters of their homes. That's what they said. You wonder where that term came from? There you go. Sounds a little bit Jesus than servant leadership that we found in Ephesians 5, but whatever. I'm just saying. There it is. I'm the boss, woman, that kind of a thing. All right. <sighs> So, that's the problem. It gets a little bit worse, though. Between chapter 1 and chapter 2, Xerxes takes his army and travels to Greece. And the battle that turns it all is the Battle of Salamis, where the Greeks rout and destroy the Persians. And, and Xerxes has to hop on a fishing boat to try to get back to safety. So he works his way back to Susa. Great loss. And when he gets back, all he can think about is Vashti. Look at what chapter 2 and verse 1. Later, when King Xerxes' fury had subsided... He remembered Vashti and what she had done and what he had decreed about her. Then the king's personal attendants proposed. And the other thing that strikes me as really strange is this guy on the one hand is very strong. He's a despot. And on the other hand, he's very impressionable. Kind of depends who's got his ear, right? And so here, here are some guys, some of his attendants are, he's just getting back and everything is a bummer. And how about Vashti? Those concubines aren't really enough. And bummer and ah, uh, we lost and blah, 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 and all that stuff. Um, and his personal attendants came up with the right idea. Let's have a beauty pageant. I mean, a beauty pageant. 
And we don't know the number of women that were brought in. One scholar suggests about 1,400 of them. I don't know. I, it's, it's, I don't know exactly how he even gets to that number, but it's a lot, okay? And he says, let a, let a search be made for beautiful young virgins for the king. Let the king appoint commissioners in every province of his realm to bring all these beautiful young women into the harem at the citadel here at Susa. Let them be placed under the care of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women, and let beauty treatments be given to them. Then let the young women, woman who pleases the king to be queen instead of Vashti. So let's bring them in, and over a period of time, you can sleep with as many of them as you want, and you pick your queen based on that. Well, that's really good advice on choosing a queen. Is that how you want your young ladies to date young men? No. But they're thinking this is the way this guy thinks. It is interesting. You know how he dies in 465 Xerxes? He's killed by two of his bodyguards because of sleeping around with some of the nobles of Persia, their wives. It's interesting. So this guy obviously um, has some sex issues, as you can see, as you read here. Okay. Anyway, now there was, so, so the writer's telling this story. They come up with this idea and the king's response in verse 4b, this advice appealed to the king and he followed. Yeah, great idea doesn't matter that you're pulling women away from their families. If they're good looking, bring them in, whatever. doesn't matter if maybe that father wanted his daughter to be with that gentleman over there. No, it's not only her loss, it's his loss. Just bring them in. It's completely calloused. It's completely upside down. It's completely self-centered. Now there's an aside, verse 5. Now, there was in the citadel of Susa a Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jair, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, who had been carried into exile from Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, among those that had been taken with Jehoiachin. Do you know what the name Mordecai, you know where he got that name? It's a Persian name. It's Aramaic. His name, he's named after the god Marduk. So the name, I don't know what his actual Jewish name was. The text doesn't tell us. All we find out is that this guy is named after Marduk. Okay? Well, they renamed uh, Daniel and his friends too. So I get that. That often happens. But we only know here you have our Marduk kind of a guy. All right? At least that's how he's named. Mordecai, verse 7, had a cousin named Hadassah. That is her um, Jewish name. And it means myrtle. It's a beautiful plant. You can look it up sometime on the internet, myrtle. Whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also named as Esther, which probably is a Persian term for the goddess Ishtar. So that both of their names that they go through go by throughout this book are Persian names of either God, of, of a god or of a goddess. So there you have it. But you think about it, folks. How hard would it be for you if you were a Jew? 
You've been brought into exile. You're trying to cope. There is anti-Semitism both where they came from and where they have gone to. We know that as the text develops. What do you do? What do you do with the pressure? Do you give in? Do you compromise enough so you can put your head on your pillow at night and go to sleep? Isn't that what a lot of people do? You kind of find out what that threshold is and you only push it as far as you can. But you have to understand they're in a very difficult position of vulnerability. Anyway, this young woman who was also known as Esther had a lovely figure and was beautiful. So the writer just wants you to know she was really a good looking woman. There you go. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. When the king's order and edict had been proclaimed, verse 8, many young women were brought to the citadel of Susa and put under the care of Haggai. Esther was also taken to the king's palace and entrusted to Haggai, who had charge over the entire harem. We don't know how big it is. One scholar, like I said, 1,000, 1,400. It's big. It's big. There's a lot of women here. I want you to notice something as you read through the book of Esther. There's several things to watch for. Watch for banquets as you read through the book of Esther. There's banquets everywhere. And watch how often you find the expression, this person won the favor of that person. Because for Esther, it's stated three times in this chapter. And then it's going to be stated again several chapter, in several of the subsequent chapters. Listen to what he says. She pleased him and gained or won his favor. Immediately, he provided her with her beauty treatments and special food, which means, what happens when Daniel was given special food? Do you remember what he did? He didn't eat it. What happens when Esther is given special food? She eats it. We're going to see why in just a couple minutes here. He assigned to her seven female attendants selected from the king's palace and moved her and her attendants into the best place in the harem. So she gets there. She's nervous. Um, and let me mention one other thing. Verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Yet, every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out Hester, how Esther was doing. So apparently she's taken, and no, it doesn't seem to be her initiative, but neither do you get this sense of complete, I'm pushing back. And she enters this beauty pageant, and they're all given attendance. And you know what, folks, as we read on, this process went for one year. Man, will you make sure that woman looks good, smells good, eats good, the whole thing. you got a year to prepare her. Wow. And every woman has a group of attendants. But for whatever reason, when Haggai sees Esther, he says, I really like her. I really, really like her. Give her the best place in the harem and give her the best attendance. I'd like her. Okay, just kind of, just kind of slips it in there for us. So, so, so we understand that. And in the process, when the food is brought, Esther eats it. 
because Mordecai had said, it's not good to tell people you're a Jew. It's just, there's too much resistance. I'm a little bit insecure about things. Yeah, but what about just do what I told you, okay? And Esther said, okay, that's what I'll do. And that's what she does. Incidentally, Mordecai, I was just wondering, um, what's your view on this idea of sleeping with pagan Gentile kings? You're here. Let's make the best of it. I imagine it sounded something like that, don't you think? I'm not condoning it, folks, at all. When you compare what Daniel did, when you compare what Ezra and Nehemiah will say after this event about marrying pagans that don't know, don't know Yahweh, it doesn't fit with the way you're supposed to respond. But I also understand they're under incredible pressure. So I'm not justifying it's wrong, but it's understandable. Okay. Verse 12, you get this whole process. So before a young woman's turn came to go into to, to, in to King Xerxes, she had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments prescribed for the women. Six months with oil of myrrh and six with perfumes and cosmetics. Wow, lady, ladies, that's incredible. They, they have found, archaeologists have found in this area, it, it, these areas where they have these... Um, um, I don't know, they would heat up these, these pits and they'd put all kinds of scents and things in them and, 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 and different, different herbs. And the women would actually stand over this stuff so it would kind of soak into their pores apparently. I don't know. I, I'm not suggesting that for anybody. I'm just saying that's apparently some of the stuff they did. I, I haven't looked into that in great detail, but um, hey, whatever. And, and, and this is how she would go to the king. Anything a woman wanted. So every woman had one shot with the king. Anything she wanted was given to her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. I would like to wear that. You got it. Could I have it? Yep. And with it? Yep. Can I get my dress? To, yep. Can I? Yep. Can I wear? Yep. I, nothing. Anything. Well, can I have my hair? Yep. <laughs> All right. I mean, because you have one shot. In the evening, she would go there and in the morning return to another part of the harem to the care of Shazgaz, another name that I haven't heard too often for children, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. So Haggai is over here. Shaz is over here. Woman goes from here in with the king. If the king says, yeah, I don't know, goes over here. And for the rest of her life, she will be a concubine of, the, concubine of the king, maybe never to have relationships with him again. I mean, living well, but that's what was happening. And if there's a thousand or 14 women, they're not real high, high chances. It's like a tenth of, tenth of 1%. And every woman's doing the same thing for an entire year. They're scheming, how can I be the one that he is just completely overwhelmed with? won't go into details. You can think about all that stuff, whatever. But you get it. You get what they're doing here, right? A little bit of overkill. A year? I don't know. How about a good month? That seems like a lot to me, but whatever. Nobody checked with me. She would not return to the king, whoever this young woman was, unless he was pleased with her and summoned her by name. 
But that's how it works because at the end of the day, it wasn't about valuing that woman. It was about that woman being used for the purposes of the despot who was in control. It's, it's, it's tragic. And you look around the world, things have not changed. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the young woman Mordecai had adopted, the daughter of his uncle Abihail, to go to the king, she asked for nothing other than what Hegai, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the harem, suggested. She's, she's wise, and he likes her. So she says, what do you think I should wear? Well, I think you should, okay, that's what I'll wear. What do you think? Okay, that's what I'll do. What, yep, I'll do that too. So pretty smart, she, 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 she worked that. And Esther won the favor of everyone who saw her. So if you were just somebody walking around, probably another eunuch, because you're not going to get real close to those women any other way, probably. You'd be looking around and you say, man, I like her. Yeah, me too. Man, I could see her as queen. Yeah, I, I think I could too. Everybody she came in contact with, Esther won the favor of those people. Then notice what happens. In verse 16, she was taken to King Xerxes in the royal residence in the 10th month, the month of Tebez, in the seventh year of his reign. Now listen, listen folks, verse 17. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti, and the king gave a great banquet, Esther's banquet, for all his nobles and officials. He proclaimed a holiday throughout the province and distributed gifts with royal liberality. So, I mean, it was a big hayway. She had one shot. And when that experience, that evening was done, he said, that's the one I want. One favor, one favor, one favor. In the notes, oh, I kind of missed a lot of that stuff, sorry. Let me, um, let, me, let me have you note this. So again, um, they have, we're in chapter two, and one of the things we're going to find here, this happens around 479, so this comes on the back end uh, of chapter, four years after chapter one. Okay. Here's the second problem and solution that surfaces. Um, it's a problem with killing the king. And I think I already told you, the king will actually ultimately die because two guards close to him will murder him while he's sleeping. So when you read a story like this, you go to yourself like, yeah, this stuff happens. Yeah, and it almost happened here. It will ultimately happen within 20 years. This is what happens, verse 19, chapter 2. When the virgins were assembled a second time, and I have to tell you, folks, there's about six or seven interpretations of that expression. Like, who? When the virgins, are these new virgins or were they the old virgins? 
my guess is we're probably looking at newer virgin, virgins, virgins who have been brought in from the outskirts of the, of, of, of the empire. And so when virgins were assembled the second time, and I imagine they brought them in and they just put them right in Shazbaz's uh, harem and was, they were done with it. Something like that. Hard to know exactly who he's talking about there. But the point is, Esther is queen. They're cleaning up this whole thing with all the, the, the virgins that are coming in. And in the midst of that, Mordecai is sitting in the king's gate, which means now he's become a judicial leader there in Persia. I don't know what he did, or political, political or judicial, we don't know exactly. But whatever, he's there in that significant position. How did he get there? I would imagine the queen had some influence on that one. Okay? You can imagine. But Esther had kept secret her family background and nationality, just as Mordecai had told her to do. For she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions, as she had done when he was bringing her up. You know what that tells me? When the virgins were gathered the first time and Esther was brought in, Mordecai said, shh, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. And he'd get as close as he could just to make sure she was okay. Whatever this second round is with the virgins, Mordecai now is close because he's right in the gate. He's an official. He's significant. He's important. But he still tells Esther, shh, don't tell people who you are. Which means she's going to eat unkosher food. She's just slept with a pagan king before he married her. There is no way you can justify that period in scripture. And certainly in Jewish scripture. You can't. But compromise happens, folks, doesn't it? So it's right. We should just all be a bunch of compromisers. No. Because there's always consequences. It's never God's way that honors him. The amazing thing about this story is that God is not behind some of these compromising decisions that are made, but God is always over it. Do you see the difference? If he's behind it, he's the one saying, go sleep with the king. God would never say that. But when people disobey and do things they ought not be doing, it's not like God says, oh no, what am I going to do now? I'll never be able to get my purposes from eternity past accomplished. Oh, bummer. No, it never works that way. It's never an excuse for the compromise. But it puts a spotlight on this incredible God. That in the Old Testament would be faithful to his covenant promises to a people. And in the New Testament, he would be faithful to his covenant promises to his church. Because that's who he is. Without ever endorsing what goes on here, he's over here. But how is it that Esther was winning favor? I don't know if this helps, but when my girls were young, they liked dolls and dollhouses, you know? And sometimes I would play with them. So you get that little 
dollhouse. And what, was, what I kind of liked about the dollhouse is we could make up any rules we wanted. And so, I, you know, I would, I would, mad, I would have the, the, the girl up in her bedroom and my daughter said, oh, daddy, daddy, I don't want her up there. And he, she'd stick her down in the living room. I said, well, why is she in the living room? Oh, she's going to be sleeping down there. Honey, you shouldn't sleep in the living room. Oh, daddy, it's okay. Okay, whatever. All right, put it out in the living room. Where do you want to put this guy? Let's put him over there. Right, you, know, you can just kind of move around wherever you want. I'm not in the dollhouse. But I'm over the dollhouse. And win favor, win favor, win favor. Without God supporting the act, he worked behind the scenes to ultimately accomplish his purposes, as we'll find in subsequent chapters. Without endorsing what people do. Look how else God does this in verse 21. During the time Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's officers who guarded the doorway. In other words, they were the guys, if you got by them, you could kill the king. Became angry and conspired to assassinate King Xerxes. Why? I don't know. I, I don't know. When it ultimately happened, it was done because of the nobility, but whatever. But on this one, I don't know why. But Mordecai found out about the plot, told Esther, who in turn reported to the king, giving credit to Mordecai. And when the report was investigated and found to be true, the two officials were impaled on poles. See, that sounds awful. It is awful. Because they impale people and they leave their bodies there for a period of time. So everybody walking by says, that's what happens if you mess with the king. That's what they did. There it is. All this was recorded in the book of the annals in the presence of the king. So it's just, it's just this incident. Here's Mordecai. He's a judge or political figure, whatever he's doing. Somehow he happens upon this conspiracy. How? I don't know. But somehow. He tells Esther, tells the king. They die. It's put down in the annals but he's never officially honored. Hmm. Just puts it to the side. Who allowed that to happen? How, how, how could he have been there at that particular time and then not been honored in that moment? Hmm. I wonder who. God is over all. Without endorsing what people do in the process. So I would argue that the teaching is pretty simple in this passage. God's providential working on behalf of his people is not thwarted by corruption in the culture nor compromise among his people. But please hear me. That doesn't mean corruption's okay. Oh man, I'm going to go out and just really mess around. You'll pay consequences for that. Xerxes did, ultimately. Well, I could just compromise and use that as an excuse because I really felt under pressure. There's always consequences. What this text tells me is that God will take all of that and still ultimately be faithful to his promises to his people. What does that mean for us? 
Doesn't mean we should compromise. Probably for most of us, we have at times. What it tells me is we should be in awe of a God that will use anybody. And it should force us to think afresh, God, may my life be more like a Daniel before you, rather than, understandably so, what Esther and Mordecai at least are doing early on. There's going to be some change for the good. I, I will grant you that. But I would argue it doesn't start out so well. But nothing will stop the purposes of God. So where do you want to be with all that? I want to be right where God wants me to be in obedience to him. Do you see? And whatever happens in the American culture or in Russia or in Ukraine or in the UK or there or there or there or there, I work and I, I pray and it worries me and we do our part and we send money. Yes, yes, yes. But folks, the world is corrupt until King Jesus comes. And that doesn't mean we have to cower and say, I'm just not going to do anything because if they find out I'm a Christian, ah! No. Be who you are. There's God who is greater than governments and a God who will even work in the midst of compromise to ultimately accomplish what only he can do if we rest in him. I find this book brings me great joy and hope. With all, I don't want to minimize the pressures we feel. I want to maximize that God is here. And he's always up to accomplishing what only he can do. Father, as we come to this book, a book which is written hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and yet, Father, you could have read something like this on the front page of the New York Times. I mean, it. <sighs> governments are corrupt. People are compromised. There's no hope. Woe is me. Should I give up? Should I just become part of that culture? Or should I recognize that you are always bigger than all of it? And I can rest in you and faithfully walk with you. Father, you have loved us by sending your son. We are your children because we believed in Jesus Christ. Will we be men and women who follow with passion as our blessed Lord obeyed his father, may we obey you. And not fear the world around us. For you are King of kings and Lord of lords. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. my faith will fail Christ will hold me fast when the tempter would prevail 
he will hold me fast i could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold he must hold me fast he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. He will hold me fast, He will hold me fast, for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me he bled and died Christ will hold me fast justice has been satisfied he will hold me fast raise with him to endless life he will hold me fast till our faith is turned to sight when he comes at last he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my savior loves me so he will hold me fast he will hold me fast he will hold me fast for my Savior loves me so, He will hold me fast. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you will hold us fast. That will is a definite, we know that. God, we know that you are sovereign and that you are constantly working for your glory and for our benefit. And we ask that you would just help us to trust in that and uh, just allow that to bleed through our lives to show a watching world uh, our confidence in you. And uh, we ask these things in Christ's name. And all the people said, amen. Thanks, guys.